ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Tasmanian devils are the largest carnivorous marsupials on the planet. They look adorable with their stocky, squat bodies, whiskers and black button eyes. But they have powerful, flesh-eating jaws. And at night, they emit a screeching, murderous howl that sounds like the devil himself, hence the name. Some years ago, Bruce Englefield and his wife Maureen came to Tasmania from England on a holiday and almost on a whim, they decided to buy a wildlife park where there were Tasmanian devils. And Bruce became entranced with these fierce and beautiful creatures and he decided he needed to know more about them and he earned a PhD in animal behaviour. Bruce was from England where he'd been a TV sound engineer and a farmer. He knew almost nothing about these creatures other than from the Looney Tunes cartoon, and so he was amazed to see them spinning, like the cartoon character does. But when he discovered they were spinning out of pure frustration, Bruce became determined to make life better for them. And so he set up the Devil Island Project to create large island enclosures to breed the devils and keep them free of the devil facial tumour that has decimated the wild population. But more than that, Bruce Englefield has had a life that's spun him in all kinds of different directions. And the key thing is that he never stopped learning, never stopped finding out new things about the world. Hello, Bruce. Hello, Richard. Do you remember seeing one of these devils for the first time? Absolutely, yes. It was uh, quite awe-inspiring when I'd only seen the cartoon character to see them in real life. It was, uh, well, it, it was a life-changing moment because I realised that this is an animal that's very different from anything else I'd ever seen in behaviour, looks, attitude. Everything about it was unique. And once I'd seen it for an hour, I was hooked. And uh, that's why we came to Tasmania. I've seen a photo of you cuddling a Tasmanian devil called Monster. <laughs> I didn't know you could do that with a Tasmanian devil. Well, the, the secret is that if you take a joey and you hand-rear it and it learns that it, it can have total confidence in you, they're very friendly animals. And we've had female devils uh, that would allow you to pick them up, examine their pouch and see their joeys perfectly relaxed. Monster looks very happy and very content in your arms, like a pussycat almost. Yeah, they would relax, but uh, in the photograph, Monster is is looking at the photographer as though to say, this is my friend, (laughs) don't do anything wrong, (laughs) I'll take your arm off. (laughs) Probably could too, with a a bit of a go. Oh, yes. So you migrated to Australia in your 50s, but how old were you when you first started dreaming of coming to Australia, Bruce? Well... I would have been round about 15 uh, at grammar school and we were given the task of writing down, if you like, our dreams, our ambitions, goals, what would we like to do, given free range. So I wrote it down in a diary that I had at the... Do you have that here? Yeah, I've got it with me. Can you read Um, what you wrote in that diary? I I can just about read my writing (laughs) as a 15-year-old. Things I want to do... June 1958. 
And number one was see the Sydney Harbour Bridge because obviously in school the Sydney Harbour Bridge was still quite a, a new thing and so it took my imagination, this wonderful engineering feat. Uh, number two was to play for England. Number three was to have coffee at the cafe in Paris that's in the drawing of the Arc de Triomphe. Number four was to own a car. <laughs> uh, number five was flying an aeroplane. Number six was build a house to live in. And number seven, oh, be on Desert Island Discs, which was a favourite radio programme in the UK. And um, get married and have children. Sing on the BBC. Meet the Queen. And the last one, I think, was to own a zoo. You grew up in Romsey in the south of England. What do you remember of Romsey in the post-war years, Bruce? Well, all my relatives worked at the local brewery. Uh, my grandfather was the blacksmith farrier, and I remember as a youngster, I could just jump up and grab the bellows to put the air into the charcoal so that he could work the steel. And, of course, Romsey's fame is that it had more pubs to the size of the town than any other place in, in England because the local brewery was Strong & Co. And the slogan was, you're in the heart of the strong country. And other memories, uh, I remember uh, what seemed as a youngster queuing for hours. When the Queen got married to the Duke of Edinburgh, they spent their honeymoon at Broadlands the home of Lord Louis Mountbatten, which is just outside Romsey. And so they came and, and drove up through the street. And I remember my father, who was a big six-foot-one copper, picking me up and putting me on his shoulder. And I think I would have been about four at the time. And I was quite scared. <laughs> <laughs> your dad served in the armed forces. Was he not around for part of your early life? Do you remember well, him coming into your life? I've got this vague memory of being petrified the first time I met my father. I know I must have met him when I was 18 months old, but I don't remember that. But I do remember when he came back from the war and uh, I would have been four coming five. And I remember this huge male with a deep voice, and he was big, suddenly appearing. And I was told, well, that's your dad. I, th I think it probably was instrumental in me not having that good a relationship with my father until I got much older in my teens. I was almost frightened of him because he was a disciplinarian and Dad would give us corporal punishment, but he never hit me. I was too clever to avoid it. <laughs> well, normally with a disciplinarian father, things go bad when you turn in your teens. What changed in your teens? The thing that changed was the fact that in retrospect, things come into perspective. And I understood he was a policeman. He couldn't have sons doing anything wrong because anybody he did anything to would say, well, your son did it. So we were told what to do and we had to expect to do it. And as I grew up, the almost fear of my father became respect. And once I started to respect him, that came that he was actually a great carer. My mother provided the love. She provided all the love and the home comforts. And my father provided the discipline, which was important part of growing up in life. 
You met your wife, Maureen, at quite a young age. How did you meet her? Well, it involves my father because going to grammar school, quite expensive, and police officers didn't get paid that well in those days. And to put it mildly, I didn't get my head down to study when I was 16 and I had to take my exams but I was much too involved in sport and girls and and generally just enjoying life to really study. And when I took my ordinary levels, well, I didn't fail completely. I did get some, but my father said, well, you can stay on because I know you're capable of doing advanced level, but no more serious girlfriends, Ah. so on and so (laughs) forth. Right. So for two years, I got my head down, I studied, I retook my O-levels that I failed, took my A-levels on June the 16th, 1961, and that was the night that I met my wife. You met her that night? I met her that night. She had finished her exams on the same day, and both of us had decided to go to the local youth club, and that's where I saw this beautiful apparition across the room, some enchanted evening, And three and a half years later, we got married. And I tend to say it wasn't love at first sight, it was lust at first sight. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, And and it still is. Uh, When my wife walks into a room, even if it can be filled with 20 women, she's the one that I, I look at and it won't go away. So after school, you got a job at the BBC. How did you wrangle that? Well, my brother always worked for the BBC and... It seemed sensible. And in those days, if you had a grammar school education and you had your exams, you were headhunted. I was headhunted by the post office, by a computer firm, Burroughs, all offering me a job. But when the BBC offered it, I had to go up to London for an interview. And uh, obviously, they thought I was worth taking on board. And, of course, the best training in the world was offered by the BBC. So you were working as a sound engineer and working on lots of outside broadcasts. Were you working with some of those great old sound engineers that went back to the 1930s, the King's Speech era of sound engineering, Bruce? Indeed. All the engineers that I worked with had come through the war and they were, they were just wonderful that they sort of took me in their arms and the stories that they had to tell... Were, were just amazing of how they got through the war because in those days we recorded on disc and so if you were out in the field with a huge Humber Super Snipe with all the gear in the back trying to get close to the action and it was also difficult to record gunfire because it would cut into the disc. The way that the engineer did it was he'd managed to get hold of a Luger pistol And so while Richard Dimbleby was giving his report about the war and he'd fire the Luger into a dustbin so that you would get that sort of whoop, whoop sound. And and, and there were lots of stories about my old engineer in charge who was R.H. Wood, uh, a wonderful man. He had a way with words of of mixing up different sayings. I remember I was trying to work on an amplifier and find a fault and I was looking into it and with all the technical instructions and R.H. walked in and he just said, uh, I, Englefield, it's no good looking for the needle if you can't find bloody haystack. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, 
RH was the one who actually took out a lot of the stammer when the king was doing his speech. So this is quite... This isn't as it was portrayed in the movie, the king's speech. It was a different thing. How did he remove the stammers from well, the king's speech in those days? In those days on disc, you could mark the disc with a yellow china graph to the point where you needed to lift the arm off the disc, slide it sideways and pick it up again. And there were some very dexterous ladies who would do this editing and the way you did it was you put a piece of paper underneath the disc so that the turntable would be going round but the paper would stop the disc going round so if you wanted to cue it all you had to do was release the paper and the disc would immediately go and you'd fade it up and so you could take out uh, stammers and even on news reports they would come back to the studio and need editing and that's what these, these women were doing. Then, Bruce, in a remarkable, incredible turn of fate, you got a job as a sound engineer on the Benny Hill Show. <laughs> yes, well, when I was at uh, the BBC, I did outside broadcast, but I realised that, that radio was a bit on the decline for an engineer. I needed to be in television. And then Thames Television started up and they offered me a job and then, lo and behold, the next thing is Benny Hill's turned up. The Benny Hill show used to have a lot of the old tropes of silent movies, the, the original silent movie comedies, but with sound effects laid on. Was that you making the kind of sounds and the, the comedic sort of sound effects as yes, well? Yes, Benny taught me a lot about comedy and sound effects and timing and how to use sound to enhance what was visual. Uh, for instance, if you see a person getting on a bike and you realise there's no saddle, you know they're going to sit on that spike. So you want a sound that <laughs> goes with it, not the sound of tearing trousers or anything. And I found that, that crushing eggshells was just the right sort of sound. But when you played the sound, you waited for the first laugh when people realised what was going to happen, and you delayed the sound until the rear end actually hit the spike. That way, Benny got two laughs. And all the time when you work with Benny, he was an absolute perfectionist, a very clever man, spoke three languages fluently. And, of course, I'm an animal behaviour person, so I observe behaviour. But that's what Benny did. He observed people and used that observation to write all his scripts. He was quite a lonely man, apparently. Like he, he, I think he proposed marriage to two women, and both of them turned him down. He lived quite a solitary life, a very frugal one. Yes. Did you see yes. that side of him? Uh, well, yes. I mean, he would arrive at outside rehearsals, and if you didn't know he was a famous star, you would never realise, and he would just leave the studio and go up Teddington High Street to buy a newspaper. And, but he also did a lot for charity and children's homes and that sort of thing, which you never hear about, of course. But he was a very wealthy man. That sound effect that was very often employed was him slapping the poor head of poor old Jackie Wright, you know, that, yeah. that t tiny diminutive man with the bald head and would have that kind of... Yes. Sort of sound, but not quite that. Did you? Was that as recorded, like the sound of a hand slapping on a head, or did you do something else for that? No, that, that was added in post-production. The way we got the sort of comedy sound was to use some wallpaper paste in a bucket 
and gave Benny a brush and he just flopped it around to get that sort of whap, sound. Whap, 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 that s- yeah, sort of but sound. If, you, if you watch it and listen to it, the slapping is not in sync with the hand going onto the head, which makes it even funnier. Oh, of course, it, it, right. Yes, it's not in sync. That's the point, isn't it? And I learned that to my cost because when I got a new digital dubbing system where you could move sound effects very easily digitally, I spent two hours syncing up the slapping with the hand going on the head. Benny walked in the door and he said, no, that's not right. We don't want it in sync. The effect is cartoony, isn't it? It's not realistic. It's cartoony. That's right. But it's funny. Yeah. And and, And if it was realistic, it wouldn't be funny. Because you go, why is he hurting that man? Yeah. But if it doesn't sound real, if if the reality isn't, isn't there, then it becomes cartoony and funny. Yeah. Yeah. So then you entered a whole new phase in your life, gave the TV and radio work away and decided to become a farmer with Maureen. Tell me about the first farm you you set up for yourself. Well, while I was working in television, one of my relaxations was on my small holding um, where I had a few sheep and chicken and, and the odd cow and the odd pig. And I went to agricultural college on my days off to learn about all of this and realised, you know, I was thoroughly enjoying it. So I transferred from television to farming, as well as slotting in building the odd house. You built your own house? I built three in altogether. So we both went off to evening classes. I learnt bricklaying, and she learnt how to build the covers to go on chairs and things. So we were able to buy a second-hand sofa, and she covered it, and it, it looked wonderful. And uh, we used to go there, just like children, really, get the bricks out, mix up a bit of sand and, and lime, build all the brick walls, then break it down in the evening and put the bricks away and go back the next week. And I was also persuaded that I should take on board a border collie that was causing trouble to a friend's neighbour. Um, and she was just going up the cricket ground and rounding up the cricketers and taking their ball. Um, <laughs> and my neighbour uh, saw that I had some sheep and she said, you need a sheepdog to work these sheep. And, of course, I knew nothing about sheepdogs and how to train them and everything. The only time I'd ever seen a sheepdog was on my uncle's farm and she used to go and get the cattle in. But that got me interested in sheepdog working sheepdogs and trialling, and I found that I was quite good at training sheepdogs. What is it about sheepdogs? Is there a moment when you see something in what a sheepdog does when you know that a sheepdog knows more than you do? Oh, yes, yes. It took me a while to, to learn to look at my dog and understand that they'd been honed for centuries to do the work that they did. I mean, there are remarkable stories of sheepdogs who come all the way from north with a flock of sheep down to Smithfield in London, and then the shepherd would go home and leave the dog to find its way home, and they would. I had one particular dog, Scott, who was a beautiful-looking dog, but gosh, was he intelligent when it came to sheep. I was working one day, and I was trying to get the sheep into the pen, and I looked at Scott... And he looked at me, and I'm sure he was saying in his face, you get out the bloody way and leave it to me, and I'll get the sheep in. Stop interfering with the gate and everything. So I stood back, and sure enough, 
Scott had picked the lead sheep, he knew which was the one that would cause trouble or that would lead the others in. So he concentrated on getting that one in and the others followed in and I shut the gate uh, and, and uh, I, I seem to remember I won that trial. And as I walked off, this experienced old shepherd looked at me and he said, it's taking you a while. <laughs> I knew exactly what he meant. So there's a moment when you have to resign yourself to the superior intelligence. Oh, yeah. indeed, indeed. And, of course, not only in the sheepdog trialling but working the flock. Scott was amazing how he would work things out. I remember one occasion when I was trying to get a particular ewe with its lamb back into the shed uh, because she had a bit of fly strike. And I sent Scott off to bring the sheep back with her lamb and, of course, the ewe turned on Scott, stamping her feet because she was protecting her lamb. So what Scott did was came round the other way and made her come towards him, stamping, and he gradually backed all the way to the shed with the sheep coming back. And he'd worked out that that was the way to shift the ewe, not to try and herd her back, but to keep challenging her, and she would come at him and get her and the lamb back in the shed. I'd love to witness a thing like that. That must be fascinating to watch a dog that can understand all those things. Yeah. So it, was it this that led you to go back to uni and then do a master's in animal behaviour, This your, your work with sheepdogs? Well, it certainly, I found, I, I, I don't know why, but it was in me training the dogs and they seemed to respond to me. And I was using a different sort of method that most of the shepherds, used, which was quite brutal sometimes. And I believe that the farm dogs, they learnt if they weren't being shouted at, then they must be doing the right thing. Uh, whereas my thing was, praise them effectively. If they were doing the right thing, that's when you praise them. And when they're doing the wrong thing, you leave them to work it out. It was much more of a sort of reward-based training than, as I say, punishment training. And once I'd sort of worked this out, I started getting people asking me, so how do you train your dog? And then they'd talk about their horse. And then there were cats. People asked me about their cats. And I thought, well, I don't know a lot about cats and things. And that's when I thought I need to understand far more about animal behaviour. And then the opportunity came up with a new course, which eventually led to a master's in animal pet behaviour. What then brought you to Tasmania? It was just a friend who'd visited and said to me, you'd love it in Tasmania because of your love of animals and the environment and conservation and things. Uh, and he just said, you should go to Tasmania if you're going anywhere. And we were planning to visit Australia anyway because we have friends here. And that's when we got to uh, Swansea. And I said, well, I've come all this way. I want to see a Tassie devil. Where's the nearest wildlife park? And the rest is history. Yes, going to see a Tassie devil at a wildlife park is a wonderful thing. It's a whole other thing to say, let's buy the wildlife park, Bruce. How did you hit on that idea? Well, I say it was my wife, but she says it was me. Right. <laughs> and she knows my mad ideas. Uh, and I always say, you know, particularly to younger people, if you've got a dream or an ambition or a passion, 
go for it. Don't listen to people who will give you all the reasons not to do it. And this was another of my mad ideas. You know, as I said, when I was 15, I said I'd like to own a zoo. We got to the wildlife park. I went round. It was a, it's a big park, you know, it's 80 acres. And I'd seen the devils and the free-range kangaroos and the whole park. And it sits with a large lake and then extends all the way down to the seashore. And we were sitting in the restaurant having a cup of tea. And, well, between the two of us, one of us said, I could spend the rest of my life here. Now, I think it was my wife and she thinks it was me. But nevertheless, I just said, well, we could. I see it's up for sale. So I called the owner over and I said, I see the place is up for sale, what's involved? Well, sadly, it was owned by uh, Neville Quinn, whose wife got murdered at the Port Arthur Massacre, and she was the animal person in the wildlife park. Neville was the infrastructure person, which is why he decided the time had come to get out. And so he said, well, it's lock, stock and barrel. Make an offer, and that's what happened. And like so many things in my life, once you set a ball rolling, things seem to happen. We had to go up to Launceston the next day, and I remember walking along the street, and I said, well, if we are going to buy a wildlife park, we need to get some solicitor to represent us here in Tasmania. And she just pointed upwards to a sign, Douglas and Collins, in Launceston. So I walked in the door and said to the receptionist, look, we're thinking of buying a wildlife park. <laughs> Could we have reference and so that we've got somebody to contact? And she just pushed a button and said, I've got a couple here who are thinking of buying a wildlife park. He said, come in. It was meant to happen. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. You can hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Now, you'd had a lot of experience with animals in the UK, but a wildlife park in Australia would be a completely different thing. It's a whole different subset of animals. Were you totally swamped when you started working on this newly acquired wildlife park? When we got over, it was more run down than I thought it was. And so we were concentrating on trying to get the infrastructure up for the animals. And of course, my wife and I, we were working 16, 18 hours a day. And how old were you at this point? Well, we'd have been 58. So it was quite a challenge. And, of course, I had to learn all about the animals. I'd never dealt with the public as such before. Even taking money was quite a challenge. I just wasn't used to it, you know, working a till and that people actually give you money. I'd always have to work to earn it. So it was a big challenge. And we managed to get uh, the wildlife park up and running quite well. And then, sadly... Only 14 months after we arrived, my daughter was nearly killed by a drunk driver 
and uh, she spent five weeks in a coma in, in Hobart Hospital. And her husband, they'd come out with us. They had two young children. One was just over one and one was four. And suddenly their mother is taken out of the equation. And my son-in-law was the infrastructure manager, very good at fixing things. And so suddenly we're in a situation, we've taken over a wildlife park and 14 months in, our daughter, who was the sort of marketing manager and publicity for the park is taken out of the equation and that really did challenge us as a family uh, to get through it and did your daughter recover uh no she still has a serious acquired brain injury but she did live but she now struggles because her frontal lobe is is damaged so she has to live in the now and every morning when she gets up her brain is trying to organize itself because she's forgotten where she is what things are and so on and of course it had a big effect on us and the children uh, trying to grow up with a dysfunctional mother who changed a lot but uh, we survived and she's still a loving daughter and uh, still keeps in touch and were you were you were you tempted at times to just sell up and go back to England where no. things were familiar? No, no, it it never occurred to us to, to, to sell the wildlife park or move out because the opportunity was there for us to help with the children and there's no better place really for children to go up than in a wildlife park. In Australia too. Yeah. In Australia. Yes. And of course we had... After Steve Irwin's sad demise, Terry came down with her two children to our wildlife park. And so there was a sort of empathy going on there with the children. And they all went off and playing, young Robert and Bindi. He was a lovely lad. He was only about four. And I asked him if he'd, he'd sign his autograph. And he said, Mr Englefield, I don't normally do that. But for you, I will. Four years old, you know, amazing, amazing. Yeah. Terry Irwin was very generous in helping uh, the Devil Island Project. What were you noticing about the devils, the Tasmanian devils, in your wildlife park and their behaviour? Well, the first thing I noticed was their aberrant behaviour with spinning. There are papers written of devils in the wild that have been studied and none of them mention seeing the devil spinning. This is a characteristic in the, you know, Looney Tunes cartoon. The, the yeah. devil spins. In yeah, there. yeah. It's... And I can only imagine that the cartoonist visited Tasmania and saw a devil in a wildlife park because they do not do that in the wild. So, that... so why was it spinning? What did you conclude? Well, it's frustration of not being able to exhibit its normal behaviour. Uh, devils run much kilometres at night looking for food, they just like running. And of course, at the time, the specification for keeping devils, it just seems horrific at the moment when I think of it, was 25 square metres of concrete, five metres by five metres of concrete to keep a wild animal in. And all the Australian zoos supported that regulation. And when I tried to get it changed, they fought tooth and nail not to get it changed. And 
with a, a, another wildlife park owner from Tasmania, we set up the, the Wildlife Institutes of Tasmania. And fortunately, there was uh, Dr. Irene Skira in the department who understood that things needed to change. And he was on our side and he helped write new specifications for keeping devils and wombats and even owning a wildlife park. Because when I came to Tasmania, nobody asked me, did I have any qualifications for looking after animals or anything? So you wanted to change the conditions by which the Tassie devils were living on within this wildlife park. How did you change it? Well, I worked with the other wildlife park owners in Tasmania and Dr. Irene Skira from the department. And we wrote up um, what we thought was a reasonable size for the devils, which was basically 400 square metres instead of 25 square metres. And uh, although the mainland gave us a lot of trouble and trying to say that that's not needed, you, you won't be able to display the devils properly in those size of enclosures, it did go through in Tasmania. And of course, because it was a Tasmanian devil, we were able to say, well, you want devils, you build enclosures of the correct size. And once we built them, the devils didn't spin anymore. You got the idea for the Devil Island project. Tell me what this was and how you got it up and running. Well, because of the devil facial tumour disease, the department had decided they would take devils from the wild that were clear of the disease and breed them in captivity. And unbelievably, when they built facilities on Marar Island, they built facilities that were only half the size of the specifications for keeping wildlife park devils. It sounds just unbelievable, but that's what they did. And of course, when I went over to visit and pointed it out, they then had to get a PhD student in to say well, it's all right to keep them in there because they won't be seeing visitors. So that was the, the start of a bad relationship <laughs> because I understood and, and so did the other people who joined me in the Devil Island project. So, so what was the project? Though? Can you explain what the project was? Well, the idea was that if you're going to take devils from the wild and then breed from them, it's a total nonsense to put them in small pens and try and breed them there and then think you can put them back in the wild. It's much more sense to put them in huge enclosures and let them breed themselves and then you've got devils that are suitable to go back in the wild because they've still got wild behaviour. And you're doing this on an island so they can't receive the infection? Well, they can't get infected with the facial tumour? Effectively, it was fencing that created a land island. It's not surrounded by water. Right. You don't need the moat. It's, right. it's double fenced so that no devils could get from the outside. Once we knew that the disease was passed by biting, then that's the common sense, you know, that if it's passed by biting, make sure they can't meet and then you can breed. And of course, one of the things that was thrown up was, well, if we breed them in captivity, we can mate A with B and we know the genetics and it all gets terribly complicated after 
20 generations, you won't get inbreeding. Whereas my idea was put all the devils into an enclosure and let them sort out themselves who breeds with who. And I was told, oh, the male, you'll get a male that will monopolise all the females and so all of the devils will be related. Didn't happen. Never did we get more than one female with one male because I knew from a behaviour point of view, once a male devil has decided which female he fancies, and once the female has decided she'll accept that male, and they can be very nasty about that, it's up to the female who decides who she'll mate with. And if she doesn't want to mate, and you put them together in a pen, you're going to end up with a dead male devil. (laughs) She actually allows the male to take her by the scruff of the neck and drag her back to a nest that she's already built, and then they mate, and then she tells the male, clear off, leave the kids to me. So how did you raise the money for this project, Bruce? Well, I went on TV and said this is the project I wanted to do, and to raise money, I was going to run the London Marathon. At what age? 66. And that was because my father died of a heart attack when he was 66, and I wanted to make sure that I got really fit. And so I thought, well, I'll run a marathon, or trained for, to run a marathon. Were you a runner at that stage? No, 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 no. Right. No, not at all. I, I kept fairly, fairly fit, but... Uh, not fit enough to go running so I knew I was going to have to do a fair bit of training and the day after I went on television uh, Fiona Hoskin who was a a chef TV personality worked with Tetsuya ran the restaurant up in Launceston rang me up and said look I saw you on television would you like somebody to run with you so I went and saw Fiona expecting to see this Amazon, who was really fit and wanted to run a marathon, but I'm sure Fiona won't mind me saying that she didn't look like an athlete, (laughs) but she said she'd train, and my wife was with me, and so on the way home, uh, she said, well, if Fiona's going to do it, I'm going to do it. So how many were there? Eventually, there were 10 of us. Running to raise money for this project. Yeah, and we all went to London and paid for ourselves and raised bit of sponsorship uh, and we all ran it and there was a surgeon from the north and a nurse and a school teacher and various others all committed to it but all these wonderful people that came on board and gave all their time and raised the money and having Fiona on board she managed to persuade Tetsuya to come down to Tassie and we put on a devil of a dinner in Hobart and in Launceston And we also had Jan Cameron on board and she said, well, I'll match whatever fun, whatever money you raise, I'll match it. And she didn't realise that we raised 160,000 on the one in Hobart (laughs) and she matched it. So between those two dinners, we raised half a million dollars. So you got the project up and running with all this money? Yeah, we got the money together. And Um, was it successful? Very successful. The first Devil's that went across to Mariah Island to be released, came out of our devil enclosures. And there were other devils that they were trying to keep in facilities at Cressy that were starting to spin. And so they took them out and put them into one of our enclosures, Devil Islands, and it all worked extremely well. The biggest problem I had was when I said I was going to do this, 
Parks and Wildlife and the department were, were against it. They said no. And, of course, what they then said is, we won't give you devils to go in the Devil Islands if you build them. But fortunately, there was a, a gentleman, Nick Mooney, who years ago had taken devils and put them onto an island off the coast and the Aboriginal people there said originally there weren't devils and when they were being given the island back, they wanted the devils removed. So Nick dropped them off to me. I'd already built some quarantine facilities so we were able to put those devils that couldn't possibly have had the disease in quarantine and we built the enclosures and I told the department and the minister that I'd actually got the devils to go in to the enclosure, basically uh, sticking one finger up. Because when I proposed it after that, typical politicians, they said, we'll give you full in-kind support. So what did that mean? No money, but you carry on and do it. And then the day I was due to open the first Devil Island enclosure at Nature World, I got a call that the minister would like to come and open it and announce that the devil had become a threatened species. And so I said, yeah, OK, fine. And from that point on, they embraced the idea. But it was thanks to Nick Mooney going to the committee and saying, look, this is a good idea, actually, and I've been to visit and I've seen what's proposed, and I think it's a good idea. You've also done a PhD. You were made Tasmanian of the Year. So much has happened in your life. Can we go through that list of yours again and just go through each of those things on your, your list that you wrote when you were 15? One by one, see the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Check. Play for England. No, well, you didn't play for England. You did, that's the one thing you didn't get. Well, I did. You be, did? Because um, <laughs> I did that with my sheepdog trialling. I made the England tea. All right. So I, I did actually uh, play for England. That's number three. To have a coffee in the famous painting of the Arc de Triomphe, and there's a cafe there with people outside. And you've uh, done that? Oh, yes. Number four? Uh, number four was to own a zoo. You've done that? And then flying an aeroplane. Well, of course, back in 1958, that was quite a dream. So that's number five. What's number six? Build a home to live in. So I did that. I did three of them. Um, and the first one I built, uh, I virtually built everything, apart from putting the titles on the roof, because I wasn't qualified to do that. And then Beyond Desert Island Discs, well, I did that later on. When I was in Australia, actually, there was a program very similar where you pick your pieces of music. Is that Margaret Throsby's show yeah, on that's ABC, it. Classic yeah. FM? Yeah. Where are we up to now? Oh, get married and have children. That was number eight. Number nine was sing on the BBC. Well, I was a chorister of the Royal Church of Music um, <laughs> and the BBC came to do a broadcast at our church. And then number 10 was meet the Queen. Well, I did that on several occasions when I was on outside broadcasts, not formally, but be in the same room as, as this wonderful lady you know it's not easy being a queen and she was great at it a really hard worker 
sadly she's gone, but I remember her for her incredible work ethic and her sense of humour. Quite early in my day when they had the Commonwealth ministers were all coming together for the Commonwealth Conference. And at the time, the Canadian Premier was Pierre Trudeau, and he was very much into the Pierre Cardin type of clothes and all the swinging image of the 60s in London and everything. And what was supposed to happen was the Queen was in the front and they supposed to come in and just give their hand and say a few words and, and then leave. And he came in, got to the Queen and completely dried. And she said, well, I think we ought to stop the recording and if you'd like to go in, uh, we'll go again, knowing the media. And as he went out through the door, she just clicked her fingers and said, how's that for a swinging image? And, of course, <laughs> we all roared with laughter and I can't imagine what it was like for the guy just outside the door then having to come in. But it was just, how's that for a swinging image? Mm. Sometimes I think that the people who were looking after the Queen thought she was stupid. She wasn't. She could see it all. She knew what was going on. I remember a time when they were dedicating the war memorial at Runnymede to the American Air Force and uh, everything was all ready, but it had been very dry. And overnight, uh, the grass had sort of gone rather brown and so they got out the green paint to paint the grass. And unfortunately, just before the Queen arrived, a lot of dandelions in the next field decided it was time to get rid of all their seeds. So all this white stuff came across, stuck to the grass, and you saw the Queen arrive, and you could see she looked and said, oh, yeah, they painted the grass, and that's the dandelions on it. And, you know, thinking that the Queen wouldn't understand that grass dies if it gets tired, you know. But, uh, yeah, yeah, there were some very interesting uh, times. Bruce, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you, and thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me on, Richard. been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au/conversations. <laughs>